Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Good morning with you all on this Father's Day. Um, big props to those dads that got up this morning, got your family moving, and said, we're going to church. Um, you know, it, it's, I was thinking about, I often think about the, diff, the contrast between Father's Day and Mother's Day. Um, Mother's Day, we, uh, the prevailing theme, at least in my church growing up, was how, how awesome mothers were and how valuable and needed. And then it seemed like Father's Day was always like, dude, get your act together. <laughs> um, but this morning, I just thinking about the, the men that I know in my life, both my own father and other men that were like father figures to me, um, knowing some of you in this church, people like Lavelle, who's been honored, and others, um, there are so many men that have displayed the father heart of God so very well. And that's what makes it a challenge at times for us to, to hear God described as a father when our own father maybe was absent or distant or unknown or abusive, and we often will transpose our relationship with our earthly father onto our heavenly father. And so we view God as distant and absent, and his love is conditional. And so we need men in the church and in our lives that display the father heart of God. And uh, I know some of you didn't have that growing up. You didn't have a father who, who loved you well, but yet God has shown you what a true father is by placing other men in your life. And so I just encourage you, if you are uh, maybe a a, a man who doesn't have children or or whose children are are out of the house and you think, well, I don't have that role anymore, you still do. There's still a a massive opportunity for you uh, to to display, to reflect the father heart of God. You know, this last week, Aaron and I were here in the the church um, office and a a young man um, came off the street because he was feeling lost and broken, and he shared with Aaron and, and I, and he was 17 years old, already living on his own, and we asked him the question, what do you, what do you need right now? What, what, what do you feel, what, what even drew you to walk into this building? And he says, I don't know what it means to be an adult. He didn't have anybody in his life to guide him and to, to point him to, to, to what it means to be a man, a young man. And so we need men. We need men in the church to step up into those roles. Um, so I commend those of you that already are doing that and, uh, can, and just challenge you to, con- to continue to remember your role. It's a needed role in the church. You know, this morning we're, we're continuing in a series. I won't be preaching the Father's Day, get your act together message. Um, we're continuing in our series on the Gospel of Mark. And, and our goal through this series has been to, to get to know Jesus better. And one of the things that we've been seeing, we're in, we're in chapter 10 today, is in the, in the recent weeks as, as we've been walking through this, is we've been seeing this theme kind of popping up where Jesus is making barriers to him known. And in some cases, the barriers to Jesus are other people. They're people that are, that are putting up unnecessary walls. We talked about this last week. We saw how Um, parents were trying to bring their children to Jesus. And the disciples were like, no, no, keep the children back. This Jesus has important things to do. And Jesus was like, time out. (laughs) My kingdom belongs to these ones as well. Uh, Before that, we saw that one of the barriers to, to knowing Jesus, to being part of his kingdom, is our own sin. 
And so Jesus takes that seriously and he says, you know what you need to do with your sin? You need to cut it off. Anything that would lead you to sin needs to be cut out of your life. You need to take sin seriously. So this morning we're going to read another passage that kind of follows this theme. We're going to meet a young man who wanted to be into the kingdom of God. He wanted to be near to God. And he asked God a question, how do I do that? And Jesus is going to pinpoint something in his life that needs to be removed. And really that's the theme of our passage this morning is what's in the way? What's in the way? So if you have your Bibles this morning, open up to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. The words will not be on the screen. Uh, I encourage you to turn there yourself so you at least know how to find it later and you know I'm not making anything up. So Mark chapter 10, and we'll read this passage together, verse, verses 17 through 31. Verses 17 through 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come to you with, from all sorts of different perspectives. We, we come from different countries, from different nations. We carry different burdens, different heartache, different joys. And yet we're all here. In this moment, June 19th, 2022. And Lord, I pray and I trust that we are here for a reason. We're here for you to speak to us, and you already have been through your word, through the songs we've sung, through the prayers we've prayed. But God, we don't want this to just be another moment, another Father's Day, another Juneteenth. We want this to be a moment where we hear your word for us. And so as one body, may we hear it. As individuals, may we apply it. 
Would you speak your truth to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were to unexpectedly receive $1 million tomorrow, what would you do with it? Where does your mind go when you think about that kind of money? My kids and I were, my boys and I were talking about it this morning when we were driving in uh, about the, the value of a million dollars. And I said, well, you know, it's not that much anymore. <laughs> when I was a kid, a million dollars was a lot. But it still is something, isn't it? It is still a pretty significant sum of money. So where does your mind go when I say one million dollars? Vacation, retirement, paying off a mortgage, buying a home, buying a car? Does it go towards helping others? Does it go towards generosity? How we view money is probably exposed in that moment when we think about how we would spend that sum of money. Years ago, someone asked a question that I'd never heard before. The question was, what is your relationship with money? I thought, relationship with money? What do you mean? And he began to explain that we have a relationship with our money similar to how we have a relationship with people. For some, our relationship with money is very dysfunctional, right? <laughs> as soon as we get paid, woo, this is great. Two weeks later, oh my gosh, <laughs> we're stressed out about it. Sometimes our relationship with money is, is a heavy burden because we don't have much. Sometimes it, it, it leads our life in places that we wish we wouldn't go. Are we all of us have a relationship with money, either good or bad. The passage we just read is part of this continual unfolding on what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus is walking his disciples through this, and he's been doing it for some time. And he's already talked about how the kingdom of God changes the way that we view things. God's kingdom changes the way that we view others in our lives. That we view them as beloved people, brothers and sisters in Christ, as inherently valuable Men, women, children, doesn't matter. God's kingdom changes things. God's kingdom changes how we view power and influence. His disciples were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus said to them, ha, ha, ha. No, hold on a second. To be great in my kingdom, you need to be a servant of all. Very different. God's kingdom changes how we view power and influence. A couple weeks ago, we, we, we talked about marriage and God's Kingdom changes how we view marriage. It is a commitment. It's a commitment that reflects Christ's commitment to us. God's kingdom changes things. And so now in this interaction with a, both a wealthy and a religious man, Jesus is challenging something else. He's exposing something else about what it means to be a part of the kingdom. And sure, it's about wealth, to be sure, but it's about something even deeper than that. The interaction starts with this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the question. This is the question. Jesus says, and I, I remember reading this when I was younger, thinking it's kind of odd. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So this very wealthy man humbles himself, running up to Jesus, falling at his feet, asking this question. And Jesus' response to him, it, 
it makes us wonder, is Jesus denying his own goodness in his response to this man? Why doesn't he receive this affirmation? Now, the, the reality is, is Jesus is not denying his goodness. What he's actually doing is pushing the man to consider who Jesus really is, to consider his true identity. Because he's about to give this man two conditions to eternal life. He's going to answer his question. And both of these conditions have to do with the authority of Jesus himself. So this man doesn't say, oh, son of God. He doesn't acknowledge the divinity of Jesus, but he knows that Jesus has something. And Jesus is pushing him in his answer to his own divinity. Now, the man himself seems pretty good, right? I mean, he says that he's kept all these commandments ever since he was a little boy. But this is where Jesus exposes his own divinity highlights it to this young man because he says, yes, these are God's commandments. And now I'm going to give you another one. Who could give another commandment? Only God himself. So he gives him another one. He says, sell everything and follow me. Sell everything you have. Give to the poor and follow me. Now, nowhere else do we see Jesus make the condition to follow him to be to sell everything to give it to the poor. We don't see this anywhere else in Scripture. So the question we might ask is why this commandment to this man? You pause for a moment. Why is that? The man had everything, but he wanted to know how to attain the most important thing. He had everything, but he wanted to know how to attain the most important. He knew something was still missing in his life. And he wanted the assurance that these commandments that he'd been following his whole life were going to lead him to where he wanted to be, with God, at peace, in heaven. Now, Jesus' requirement of him at first glance seems a little bit harsh, doesn't it? That response. Oh, if you want to follow me, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then you can follow me. That's how I would typically read it, right? Kind of almost like, yeah, whatever. Kind of cynical towards this young man. But that's not the posture that we see in Scripture. Look at this. Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. He looked at him, and he loved him. And this is where we often read our own kind of emotions into the biblical story. We we miss that Jesus' posture toward people is love. He says these things because he cares. And this is the context This is the context of this whole interaction. Jesus gave him a hard requirement because he loved him. And his instructions to this man were no less serious or loving than what Jesus had previously said about sin. Sin is so serious, you need to cut it off. If your arm, your leg, your eye, if they're leading you to sin, you need to deal with that severely and harshly. Do whatever it takes. And so Jesus really is following in that same theme with this young man. You need to remove something from your life in order to truly follow me. Because what the man lacked was a total allegiance to God. And this is the truth for all of us. Jesus knows that there are things in our life that are keeping us from fully following him. So in his love, 
God will make those things known to us. He will make those things known to us. The sad part of this story is that for this man, he, he humbles himself, he runs up, he falls at his knees, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when Jesus answers him, he, his response is to go away. He can't do it. He chose wealth over following Jesus. Now, Jesus' disciples, they're not nearly uh, as wealthy. And at first glance, they seem to actually side with the man. They, they can't believe that Jesus would say this to this man. This guy has kept the commandments. And in their culture, wealth was a sign of God's blessing in your life. If you had prosperity, then clearly God was on your side. And so they wrestle with this and, and essentially ask the question, if this guy can't get into heaven, who's done the right thing and who has prosperity, then who can? Who can get in? How would you answer that question? If somebody were to ask you, how do you get to heaven? Who gets into heaven? What do you have to do to be at peace with God? to experience eternity with him. A vast majority of the world believes in God and in the afterlife. And many, even in the church, think that the way to get there is just by living a good enough life. So this man, he came to Jesus, it seemed very humbly, but he clearly knew that he had done a lot of good things in his life. And he thought, if I could just find out if there's any other good thing that I'm missing that I need to do, then I'll feel even more at peace about my eternity. This kind of religious thinking, like if you, if you can just have enough good things to outweigh the bad, this kind of religious thinking is a lot like playing poker. Some people think that they have a good enough hand to win. They think, man, my good outweighs my bad. I remember talking to a neighbor of mine, and, and we are talking about faith, and, and he says, you know, I, be, I believe in God. And I said, well, I, I, how do you have the assurance that you get to, to be with him in heaven? He's like, well, I've been a pretty good person. I said, do you keep track? Do you keep track of all the good things you've done in your entire life and all the bad things? Because I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty nervous facing God and saying, I think I was good enough. And so this religious thinking, it's like, it's like holding a hand thinking, this is, a, this is a good enough hand to win. But you don't know. And honestly, most people, if they're honest, they're just bluffing. <laughs> they're just bluffing. And so either way, it's a massive gamble to think your good enough deeds will outweigh your bad ones. And so Jesus reminds this man that no one, no one is good enough. Only God. Okay, then, <laughs> the disciples ask, then who gets in? If somebody like him doesn't get in, who does? And this really messed with the disciples because I can imagine that they thought that at that point, that following Jesus, the, the main reason they were following Jesus was so that they could learn how to be good enough. And I think a lot of Christians think the same thing. Man, I, I go to church on Sunday so I can learn how to be just good enough. 
And that will give me enough favor with God that, that in the end, when I meet him face to face and he says, why should I let you be with me forever? I'll say, man, I went to church three out of four Sundays my entire life. I gave 10% of my income my entire life. On Christmas, I put money in the little bell thing guy. You know, I did those things. That's why. And I, and I can imagine the disciples, they, just, they still didn't know. They were with the Son of God. They were with God in the flesh. And they were thinking to themselves, this is a good place to be because he's going to teach us how to be good enough. And I don't know about you, but that hits hard for me because I still revert to that thinking today. When I ask people, man, how, how do you feel? How, how close do you feel to God? How's your faith right now? Most everybody I ask that question to defaults to some action they need to do. You know, I, I, I could probably be spending more time in the Bible. You know, I, I know I come on Sunday, but I probably should get involved with some other things in the life of the church. That our default is to what we should do more of, more good things. And Jesus, that's not his point. That's not what he wants. And so this really messed with the disciples, and they're like, who can get in? And Jesus' answered to them was this. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. I love the way Eugene Peterson rephrases this. He says, you have no chance at all if you, can think, if you think you can pull it off by yourself. But you have every chance in the world if you let God do it. Isn't that better news? Isn't it better news to know that it's not my goodness that gets me into good favor with God? That it is his goodness? It is his goodness that he gives to me? <laughs> That's what gives me the assurance of my salvation. Not what I've done. So we could easily read this passage and think, man, well, isn't this particular interaction just for rich people? Isn't it just for rich people? Now, whenever we hear a tough teaching from Scripture, there's kind of three typical responses that we have when we read it. One is we embrace that teaching and go, oh, wow, this is really tough, but wow, this is really good. This is, this is for me. Another one is we just avoid it altogether. And this is why I like to preach verse by verse through books. I can't avoid it. can't avoid the tough teachings. <laughs> the third thing is we explain it away. Well, in the original Greek, you know, I'm sure it meant something else, and it has nothing to do with me. <laughs> right? I always say that. We, we nod and smile to Scripture until it actually speaks to something we're dealing with. And we go, well, I don't know. We become theologians all of a sudden. Google theologians, at least. So do we just ignore the kind of context of what's happening here? Jesus' direct teaching about wealth and the barrier that it might be to following him? No, we don't. In fact, for us as Americans, this is a primary idol of our, of our nation. We live in a money and stuff-oriented nation. We've got Black Friday and Cyber Monday and Prime Day. We, everything is geared in our culture to get us to, to buy more, to spend more. Consumerism is one of the gods of American culture. But wealth and possessions, they can't promise us eternal life. They can't offer us forgiveness of our sin 
or whole relationships with God and each other? As the notorious B.I.G. said, it's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. I was reading this last week that, that lottery winners, 70% of lottery winners are broke within seven years. And, and you know, the, the lottery system, it preys on people who are looking for a quick fix for their life. And honestly, most of those people, the statistics show that the lottery system preys on the most underserved and underprivileged people in society. When, when studies are done on who, who plays the lottery the most, it's the people that are the poorest, that are in the most underserved communities. And so at its core, consumerism, it makes uh, promises of hope, offers promises of contentment in the good life, all the while whispering in our ear that what we have is not enough. Somebody said to me once, do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you? So Jesus, he wants his disciples to see a couple of things here. He wants to see the barrier for this man that is keeping him from following Jesus. But in the bigger picture, he wants to show that the, the, the barrier of wealth is a very real thing. And so he uses, I can't tell here, is this a, supposed to be a shocking or a funny illustration? But he uses an illustration. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the wealthy to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, a camel in, the, in that part of the world was the biggest animal. And so, camel, needle, right? <laughs> Not to scale, of course. And, you know, I, I, I saw this comic that, you know, if Jesus were to say this to a, a rich person in America, this is probably how they would respond. Well, it's simple. We'll just need a bigger needle. <laughs> or we'll buy a bigger needle, it says. So Jesus is trying to illustrate the barrier that, our, that, our, that wealth can be to somebody that wants to enter the kingdom of God. So as Jesus commanded this rich man meant to be universal for all of us. Are we all after service today supposed to go and sell everything we own and give it to the poor? If so, a lot of you won't be able to make it to church next Sunday because you won't have a car, right? So is Jesus' command to the rich meant to be universal for all of us? I would say yes and no at the same time. So let me explain. If it was universal for all followers of Jesus, then we would have seen this particular command repeated over and over and over to every person that would follow him. But it's not. But it is reflected, the heart of this command is reflected in the early church. And it's reflected in the church today. We don't see this, everybody, every believer that follows Jesus selling everything, but we see this kingdom perspective of money that changes things. Just like God's kingdom perspective changes how we view each other, how we view power, how we view those that are needy, the perspective of money also does that. We see in the early church, we see that the church would take care of some of the most vulnerable women in society, the widows, those that had lost their husbands. They had widows' roles where they would minister to and take care of 
women in the church. My church growing up took this seriously. A, a, a good friend of mine, his dad died of brain cancer. There's five kids in his family. And our, my church rallied around his family and his mom, and they took care of their financial needs for years. They took this command seriously. They took this, this idea of being generous. And so we see the church taking this kingdom perspective of money by feeding the poor, by expanding the ministry of the church. And our church is involved in the same thing. M many of you know that we have what we call a benevolence fund in our church. And that benevolence fund is used to help people in our church family that can't m meet some basic needs. If there's uh, things that happen that are emergency situations or utilities or whatever it would be, man, we, we help take care of each other in our church. We also have a fund in our church we call a community assistance fund because we get phone calls almost every week from people in our community that say, help, I need help. And so we use those funds to bless those that are outside of our church. In our church office, we have gift cards. When people come up and knock on the door and they say, hey, my car just ran out of gas. Can you help me? I don't do a bunch of vetting and say, well, you know, are you really going to spend this on beer or whatever it would be? We say, listen, if you need help, here's a gift card. We're going to bless you. And so the church has, has taken this relationship with money that Jesus teaches on in multiple places and says, money is not a barrier to, to the gospel uh, and it is not something that runs our lives. We use what God has given us to invest in his kingdom purposes. And this is different than a lot of what you would hear on, uh, from a lot of what I would call prosperity teachers. A lot of those tele televangelists, which honestly, I'm going to say my generation doesn't even like to talk about money in church because of them. Because the, because the, the gospel has been used to, to, to create wealth for preachers. Where they'll say, hey, if you really want to be blessed in your life, you need to give money to me and my ministry. And then God will bless you as a result of that. That is not the teachings that you see in Scripture. That you give to be blessed. We give because we are blessed. But not to get something in return. So just like his teaching on sin, we should never soften the truth of what Jesus is conveying here. About the obstacle that material wealth can be to following him. And it would be easy to read this and think it only applies to rich people. So let me give a bit of global perspective for us all. More than a third of the people in the world today live on less than $2 a day. More than a third of the people today live on less than $2 a day. And so basically this old iPad, which is like 10 years old now, <laughs> This represents about a half a year's salary for a third of the world. 80% of the world lives on $10 a day. 80% of the world lives on $10 a day. You know how much that is per year? I'm terrible at math, so I had to use a calculator to find this out. That's $3,600, give or take, for an entire year. Can you imagine living on $3,600? 80% of the world. If you own a car, one car, you're in the top 10% of the world's richest people. If you make more than $50,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the people on the planet. A little global perspective helps. Now, I get it. Wealth is relative. King County is expensive. 
But it's helpful to zoom out a bit because it gives us a perspective both on the culture that we live in and what our relationship is with money. So what's the big idea? The big idea. The big idea is what is in the way? What is keeping you from following Jesus and being a part of his kingdom? For this man that came to Jesus, it was his wealth. Jesus has already warned about things that get in the way, whether it's people that cause others to stumble, about sin, and now he's pointing out the truth is that we cannot pursue both God and wealth. One's going to win. And so again, I want to be clear here. This isn't a universal command for every Christian to sell everything or intentionally live in poverty. But my goodness, let's also be careful not to minimize this teaching. Because we live in a culture that everything is oriented around this. And so if we do minimize this, we run a greater risk of continuing to allow this particular American idol to run our lives instead of Jesus. Jesus has similar yet different interactions with others who half-heartedly say they want to follow him. In Matthew's gospel, there's a man that says, hey, I want to follow you, Jesus, but first I got to take care of some family business. One of my relatives just recently died. Do you hear what's happening here again? I want to follow you, but there's some other things. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Another man comes up to him and he says, hey, I want to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus, knowing that he wanted to follow him for personal gain, says, just so you know, if you're going to roll with me, we don't have places to stay. Like We're probably literally going to be sleeping in fields while we go about. And the guy's like, oh, forget that. Jesus knows the things that we have in our life that need to be removed so that we can fully know him. And he tells stories about the value of the kingdom. He says the value of God's kingdom is like a treasure in a field. Somebody sold everything they had so they could attain it. It's like a pearl of great price. Nothing else was worth having other than that. So they gave it all up so that they could have it. So regardless of your personal wealth, what is the universal truth in this story? is that in order to follow Jesus, there is going to be a conflict in your life. A conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. The way that things work in this world versus the way that they work in God's world. The kingdom of this world teaches us that by your own strength, you can do anything. Jesus teaches that we're not good enough to earn God's kingdom. It's literally impossible, but he will give it to us. The kingdom of this world teaches us that we're to pursue our own comfort first. Jesus teaches that unless you're ready to experience worldly discomfort, you're not ready to follow him. The one who will lead you into eternal comfort is him alone. When we read this story, we often focus on the command to give up the wealth, and we disregard the second part of the command. Because when this young man came to Jesus, he was asking for the secret sauce, for the one thing that he needed to do that he wasn't doing. Jesus said, you need to remove this barrier from your life of wealth and follow me. That was the trick. Not just removing something, but then also following Jesus. And he refused to do either one of those things. Following Jesus costs something. And the Christian faith is not a, my will, the Christian faith is, Not a my will be done, take up your cross, last shall be first 
It is, sorry. I take up your cross. Last shall be first, servant of all, suffering for doing good kind of faith. And let me tell you, when you choose to follow Jesus, the things you thought were important, the things you were afraid to lay down, you realize how unimportant they truly were. And I'll end just with one story. When I was younger, um, I was a part of a missions organization for four years. And the way that I lived was by members of my church and other friends and family supporting me financially so I could preach the gospel in different countries. And I did this for four years. I was completely dependent on the generosity of other Christians to support me as a very young missionary. Everything I owned, I could put into two bags. <laughs> and I was cool with it. But there was always this nagging, like I would see somebody driving a car. I'd be like, oh, it'd be nice to have a car again. Or I'd see somebody with a new computer. I'd be like, oh, it'd be nice to have a computer again. There was some stuff that I, I felt like, man, it would be great to have that. But I was where I knew I wanted to be. And what happened was a few years before that, I had prayed a prayer. In the midst of uh, my family falling apart and this kind of feeling like, uh, I was broken and lost. Uh, I, for the first time in my life, even gr I had grown up in the church, felt like I was hearing the voice of God. I felt like he was personal and close to me. And it was the most uncomfortable season in my life, and yet I felt, never had felt closer to God. And it was out of that discomfort in my life that God called me to do missions work overseas. And in the midst of that discomfort, I, I, I prayed a prayer to God that I, I don't recommend praying unless you mean it. I said, God, if feeling this close to you and into your will and means being or uncomfortable, don't ever let me get comfortable again. A dumb prayer if you don't mean it. <laughs> and invariably, every season or so, God would put me through a season of discomfort where he would either expose sin in my own life or my dependency on things that weren't important. He would honor that prayer. So after my time overseas doing missions work, I moved back home, and Jessica and I were dating, and I was like, I, need, I want to marry this woman. And I had 54 cents in my bank account. I remember stick, sticking my ATM uh, receipt uh, onto a bulletin board. And I was like, okay, God, it can't get any worse than this, 54 cents. And I, I had two goals. One is to, to, to work hard enough to get a car so that I could drive up to Washington to visit my fiance, well, my, my girlfriend at the time. And number two is to get enough money to buy a ring to ask her to marry me. And so I worked two jobs to try and do this. And I remember going from everything, uh, having everything in two bags to then fast forward a couple years later, we were married. We were living in California. We had our, our first apartment together. We each had a car. I had a computer in the other room. I had a TV. I had a couch. I had the stuff that I hadn't had for years. And I was sitting uh, on the floor when, when I, and Jessica was in the other room, and I thought, ah, oh, this is nice. I have stuff again. And God tapped me on the shoulder, and I heard very clearly, hey, Andrew, if I told you to sell it all, go back to the mission field, would you do it? And without hesitation, I said no. And then I broke down and began to cry because I realized what had happened in my life. Is that, that I had begun to, to assemble my kingdom, <laughs> and to, to, to gather the things that make me feel comfortable. And that prayer that I had prayed, don't ever let me get comfortable again. God honored that. And so this is the challenge for us, 
to be aware of the things that we are putting in our lives that keep us from fully walking in the kingdom of God. Jesus ends this little interaction with his disciples, and he says to them, he says, Truly I tell you, no one, is left home, no one who has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. Along with, <laughs> what? Persecutions. But we'll have these things in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will become last. And this is a reality for many believers in the world today. Just as we talked about finances, many have given up everything to follow Jesus. And they have lost everything to do that. Jesus constantly overturns our idea of how we think things should work. In his kingdom, the servant is made great. Those who suffer are exalted, and the last are made first. And this is true because Jesus, God in the flesh, made himself last by going to a cross so that those who realize they are last can receive the grace of being first, forgiven and restored to fellowship with God as a part of his kingdom. This is how we get in, by the grace of God. So by all means, tomorrow, Monday, work hard. Earn money to take care of yourself and your family. But at a moment's notice, if Jesus points out to you that it, your wealth, or anything else in your life is a barrier to following him, give it all away. Be ready to respond to him. You will never regret the temporary discomfort of following Jesus compared to the eternal rewards of being part of his kingdom. Amen? I want to end in a moment of reflection. In this moment, I would ask you to consider if you were to run to Jesus and you were to drop on your knees and say, Jesus, what is it? What is it that is keeping me from fully following you? I want you to ask that question only if you mean it. Don't ask it if you don't mean it. Because sometimes the, the convicting word of the Lord hurts. <laughs> but if you mean it, ask it in these next moments. And then if you're married, share it with your spouse. Share it with a, a friend. And ask the Lord to show you what to do so that you can be a fully devoted follower of him. Maybe it means not to quit your job and sell everything, but to work to the glory of God in your workplace, to treat people differently so that you don't see them as a barrier in your workplace. You see them as an opportunity to display the grace of Jesus. Maybe it means removing some things in your life that are occupying too much time, too much headspace, too much distraction, video games, Netflix streaming, who knows what it would be. Only God knows. So I'd ask you, if you're courageous enough to ask God what that would be. And then as our worship team was singing that song, Jesus Alone, I don't know if many of you know that Aaron and Tiffany wrote that song. I think that would be a great song to end with as a, as a response for us. So let's take a moment. We'll have the worship team come up. And I want you just, all of us, to just take a moment and ask God that question. Lord, what is it? Father, what is it? Would you show us this morning? We are a gathered body. We are together in our diversity. We are unified asking your spirit to speak to us this morning that we might be fully committed followers of you. So Jesus, we fall at your feet this morning. 
We say, what must I do? Oh, Father. And we were reminded as well that it is not anything that we do that attains that eternal life. It is a gift that you've given us. So, Father, we receive the gift this morning. But some of us are having a hard time doing that because we're afraid. We're afraid of being uncomfortable. We're afraid of giving something up that we feel like we are in control of. And this is what repentance does. It it causes us to see those things differently, to turn away from them and to turn to you. So we repent this morning, Lord. We repent for the things that we have placed before you, in between you and us. Would you expose those things? Would you show us where they are so we can fully receive the good gift of your grace? You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.